So Christmas is over, at least Christmas Day is over. Most of us are still decorated for Christmas and will probably be until like March or so, maybe. <laughs> but even though it might be over in our homes, it's hopefully not over in our hearts. And we have this new year, in fact, a new decade we're looking forward to beginning in just a couple of days. Now, this season's always a time of newness, and it's a time of birth. In fact, for the McElwains, it was literally <laughs> a time of birth. And so uh, it's, it's amazing to get to rejoice and kind of experience the birth of a person, right? Around the same time that we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. Many of you have experienced birth, have witnessed birth, maybe even help deliver a child into this world. But have you ever been around for the birth of a church? And some of you may have been around for the birth of this church. I'm not totally sure. It's been a while. Um, when Amber and I moved to Dallas uh, in 2004, I think, when I began to go to seminary, we found, through some searching on the Internet before we got there, this little church from a denomination with which we were familiar called Rockwall Community Church, and it was a church plant. Uh, initially, it met in the cafeteria of a middle school, and then when the rent got too high, we moved to, to the Rise, which sounds cool for a church, right, the Rise, but it stood for the Rockwall, which was the name of the town, Rockwall Indoor Sports Expo. We worshiped the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the bright green artificial grass of an indoor soccer field. And we were not there for the birth of that church. It happened, I think, a year or so before we began, uh, before we arrived in Dallas. But what I heard was that they began with about 60 people, which for a church plant is pretty amazing. In fact, if you have 60 people, you're only about 10 or 15 people smaller than the size of an average church in America. So 60 people for a church plant is pretty strong, pretty good. 60 people, very few of whom were new believers. Most of these folks were um, had been believers for some time, had some experience in churches and leadership and ministry. Um, they started this church. They had solid people. They had a solid pastor with some experience, some gifted contributors to different ministries that they carried out. The church grew a little, then it shrunk a lot, and then it went out of business, all in about five or six years. Brick-and-mortar churches can be vulnerable organisms. They're composed of men and women who are vulnerable vulnerable to countless temptations. Brick-and-mortar churches often do not last. They do not survive. The long-term success and sur survival rate of evangelical church plants is very low. Most of them do not last, but some do. Yet we have these promises that the church, and I would emphasize here that what the New Testament church has in mind is usually the church with a capital C, that it will not fail. In fact, Jesus tells us that not even the gates of hell can overcome it. He also promises to protect it 
until he hands it over to the Father at the last day. In fact, the book of Revelation is the story of how the church, through Jesus, wins against her opposition. The book of Acts bears almost no obvious resemblance to the book of Revelation. However, it's the story of how the church survives. How it survives personalities, how it survives politics, and how it survives the power of evil. In the book of Acts, what survives is not what we might imagine a church to be. I know of no church building in the New Testament. While the early composition of the church was largely Jewish, the most logical place to meet was at the synagogue, and they did. Then as persecution increased, and as the composition of the church became increasingly less Jewish and more Gentile, uh, the church seems to have met in people's homes. Acts tells this story, and we're going to be looking into the story to find our own story for the next several months. The book of Acts is difficult in some ways. It's a transitional book. It tells us how the church was born and how it was established. A lot of really wild things happen in the book of Acts, and it can be hard to know what to do with it all. Do we strive to have the same kinds of experiences that the early church did, that we read about in the book of Acts? Do we try to imitate what they were doing? That's one approach. Do we ignore most of it? Because the church is no longer a new thing. That's another approach. A professor at my Bible college told our class that we should never learn our theology from the book of Acts because it's a transitional book. I believed her because you're supposed to believe your professors at Bible college. I now think she was wrong or more likely that I misunderstood what she meant. You see, the book's the book of Acts is about theology in action. While the book's title refers to the Acts of the Apostles, it is more accurately the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In this book, we see what God is like through the work of the Holy Spirit to start, to sustain, and to spread the gospel of Jesus. I've already commented a bit on the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of Acts a couple of weeks ago, so my comments on that section will be brief. And then what I want to do is take a more uh, a, a closer look at verses 12 through 26. But let me begin in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood by them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The book of Acts was written by Luke, and it's really a continuation of the gospel of Luke. Luke is an eyewitness to much, but not all, of what he records. It's addressed to a man named Theophilus. Some have suggested that Theophilus refers to a group of people, maybe to Christians in general, or maybe to a specific church somewhere, because the name Theophilus means lover of God or beloved of God. However, Theophilus as a man's name is well attested in the literature of this period. Theophilus is most likely a person of some means who has sponsored Luke to write this account of Jesus' life and ministry and now the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and the expansion of God's kingdom. Verses 3 and 4 are very important. They assert that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily. This is something that many of us assume, and rightly so, but has implications <coughs> that go well beyond what many of us have ever thought. In fact, verses 3 and 4 will be my text for Easter Sunday. Right now, I just want to say that the point is more than that the resurrection happened. The point of these verses is that the resurrection happened to Jesus' body. The rest of the passage is really about the apostles getting ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's the certainty of the promise of the coming Holy Spirit that sustains the followers of Jesus in the midst of their uncertainty about the timing of the return of Jesus. The point of this is that the followers of Jesus shouldn't be watching the clock or staring into the sky while they await the second advent. Rather, they must get to the work, get to the task, which is exactly what we see them doing in the rest of chapter 1. So let me read the rest of that for you. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Al-Kadama, 
that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also, called, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. There's a lot going on in this chapter, even in the second part of this chapter that I just read. But what I want to focus on this morning is three ways that the church prepares for its task, because that's what they're doing here. The church, this group of about 120 believers, is getting ready for their vocation as they await the Holy Spirit. The first thing I see in this passage is that the church prepares for its task by seeking God in the fellowship of prayer. The church prepares for its task by seeking God in the fellowship of prayer. Verses 12 through 14 tell us that they obeyed Jesus' instructions. They returned to Jerusalem where they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't just wait, or perhaps better, they waited actively rather than passively. They returned to the upper room. It's interesting to do a study of upper rooms in the New Testament. This could be the same upper room where they shared their final meal with Jesus prior to his crucifixion. The same upper room where Jesus prayed for them and where he prayed for us. And the same upper room where Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. There are some other possibilities for the identification of this upper room, but I can't imagine that this significance would have been lost on anyone there. In this upper room, they are together and they pray constantly. I'm impressed that Luke tells us that they were together because it seems obvious. However, the word Luke uses here means that they were together with a shared mind or maybe a shared passion, not just present with each other, but they had a shared mind, a shared passion together. I love this. Uh, the next point, we'll talk about unity and diversity, but I want to say now that if we have a mind for the things of Jesus, if we have a passion for his kingdom, a passion and a mind to know him and to work at the task that he has given us, we should be able to be together in prayer with anyone else who shares that same mind and that same passion. These followers of Jesus were together in constant prayer and in anticipation of the coming Holy Spirit. So why pray? 
why not just wait and like watch a bowl game or do a crossword puzzle? I don't know what their options were in the first century for leisure time. But like I said, they don't wait passively. They wait actively. They wait in prayer. Why pray? Right? The Spirit's promised. The Spirit's coming. Why not just wait? Why not strategize? Why not have meetings about how best to shape the message to make it attractive? Why not start planning to construct a church building that will attract everyone from the neighborhood? Why pray for what's already been promised? Several reasons come to mind. First, you will see very little, if anything, the Holy Spirit does in the book of Acts that's not accompanied by the prayers of the people. I'm satisfied to say that how prayer works is a mystery. 20 years ago, I had it all figured out. How our prayers relate to the activity of a sovereign God. I knew how all that worked. But those answers I once had no longer satisfy me, and so I'm not going to give them to you. In fact, they tended to speak more of my perceived wisdom than of God's. I'll say this, however, that if you are praying for God's kingdom to grow, then your faith will not rise and fall at the rising and falling of your circumstances because his kingdom can grow in spite of, even better, because of your circumstances. Notice also in verse 14 that prayer and togetherness are not two different activities. They don't have fellowship and then have prayer. They were together in prayer. I think this works both ways. Being of one mind and passion in our prayers can bring us a degree of togetherness and a degree degree of fellowship that very little else can. We can see something of this in communities, even in nations, when they, they experience some kind of very significant tragedy. The urgency of whatever need is there and the reality of a shared grief can bring people together who otherwise would never come together in any meaningful way. So while the urgency and the shared passion of prayer brings togetherness, I also believe that togetherness can make our prayers more effective. The 120 or so men and women gathered together had shared experiences. They had followed Jesus to some extent. They had witnessed his death. They had countered him in his resurrection. They may have cheered for different football teams, but they had intimate togetherness through their shared experiences with Jesus, which increased the passion of their prayers. So the church prepares for its task by being united in prayer, by being together in prayer. The second way the church prepares for its task is by seeking and demonstrating unity in the midst of diversity or unity instead of uniformity. Look closely at verses 13 and 14. I'll read them again. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter... John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, 
the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Who were the apostles? Who were the twelve? Now eleven, but soon to be twelve again. They were men from very diverse backgrounds, white-collar to blue-collar. They were diverse in their previous vocations. Chosen about three years prior to this, it's truly the work of God in their shared passion for Jesus and his kingdom that they are all still together, minus Judas, of course, and we'll get to him later. This is Luke's second listing of the twelve. But the list in Acts is in a different order than the list in his gospel. The list we have here seems to be in order of their prominence or of their significance, with Peter, John, and James mentioned first. What's telling to me, but what's easy to miss if we don't look closely, are some of the details that Luke still calls Simon, Simon the Zealot. There's no need to mention that here. Because Peter, who could also be called Simon, is not called Simon, but Peter. Yet here Luke tells us that it's Simon the Zealot. We also have Matthew. Remember Matthew. He was a tax collector. We talked about this in our study of the parables, but just to remind you, the tax collector had compromised. The tax collector had agreed to collect taxes for Israel's oppressor. He worked for Rome, and then he worked for himself, because whatever he could collect above what Rome demanded was his own. So in Matthew's previous life, he had sold out to Rome. He had compromised. And then you have Simon, the zealot, who was at the other end of the spectrum. The zealot was willing to kill Israel's oppressor. These two men had radically different politics, but they came to share one passion, a passion for the purpose of Jesus and for the task of his church. There is unity here in the midst of diversity. We also have here the mention of Mary and the other women. Luke uniquely mentions women and gives them prominent roles when his contemporaries would not have done so. I find it intriguing that Mary's present for the birth of Jesus and for the birth of his bride. I think it certainly speaks to her ongoing and growing understanding of the significance of the work of her son Jesus. Other women were present as well, probably a bunch of other Marys. They are all named Mary, it seems like, kind of like John here in Port Lyons. <laughs> If you're not sure, just guess John, you'll be okay. In the Bible, if you're not sure, guess Mary or some derivative of it, and you're probably right. So what I'm saying is this. If Luke is trying to prove that the very best of the citizens of Israel have come to believe in Jesus' resurrection, then he's done a poor job. Because he's got a tax collector, a zealot, a bunch of fishermen, and a handful of women who are testifying to the resurrection of a carpenter's son. Not a persuasive story, if that's his intent. But Luke here isn't trying to impress. 
I think what he's doing is he's hinting at the nature and the composition of the church. Not only will the church be made of people from all nations, from all the way to the ends of the earth, the church will also be composed of all kinds of different people. And now add to this the presence of Jesus' brothers. I guess technically they would have been half-brothers, but the point is that they were not... Some have proposed that they were foster brothers or maybe cousins. Usually people who suggest that are trying to um, preserve something about Mary. But the word means brothers. And it might make sense that the brothers of Jesus are here, right? I mean, they grew up with them. He was their big brother. We don't know a lot of details about their opinion of their big brother, but we do know, according to the Gospel of John in John chapter 7, that about six months prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, his brothers don't believe. And now, about six months later, they do. We have men and women united in purpose and united in prayer, people from questionable political backgrounds united in purpose and prayer, disciples whose names would be remembered for thousands of years, and disciples who would disappear from our memory if we didn't read their names from time to time, united in purpose and in prayer. Seasoned veterans, together with rookies, united in purpose and prayer. This is how the church prepares to fulfill its task. There's always a temptation for churches to seek uniformity. And there are ways to do it. If you build your church in the right part of town, then you can sort of control the socioeconomic profile of those who will come. If you play a particular style of music, then you can kind of control the age of those who will come. That approach, those approaches, however, don't build unity. They might build uniformity, but they don't build unity. True unity comes with the diversity of individuals who are united in purpose and in prayer for the kingdom of God. So the church prepares for its task by its unity in the midst of its diversity. Finally, the third way that the church in this passage prepares for its task, and this is where we get to this whole kind of weird thing with replacing Judas, is by being the people of God. The lengthiest and most detailed part of our passage is the account of Judas' death and his replacement. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details there. I want to answer a bigger question. Every time I've read this account, I really haven't understood it. Like, what's the big deal, right? Jesus had a lot of followers. There's 120 folks here. Why was there a need to replace Judas, to replace one of the 12? Read through Acts and you'll see that the 12 are largely insignificant. A few of them play prominent roles. The rest of them aren't even mentioned. So why is it important to have 12 and not 11? I think there's two reasons for this. One, we know that Jesus teaches and the Apostle Paul explicitly affirms 
that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as Paul says. So even if many of them sort of disappear into obscurity, in fact, the most we know about most of them comes from just church tradition, not from the New Testament. How they died and where they ministered is largely a product of church history, not in the pages of the New Testament. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that we don't get a lot of information in the New Testament. So even if many of them disappear into obscurity, they were essential in the birth of the church, the birth of the body of Christ. So why 12? Well, Jesus chose 12 in order to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 symbolize all of Israel. Why do this? What's the point? It could just be that numbers and symbols were important in the Jewish culture. And um, ancient Jewish folks sort of just by nature kind of gravitated towards certain significant numbers and symbols. But I think it goes beyond that. I believe the purpose of the 12 is at least to point us toward the continuity between Israel and the church. The 12 who represent Israel are at the same time the foundation of the church. The question of the relationship between Israel and the church is complicated and has a long history of debate and a long history of division based on how you decide things. Questions like, has the church replaced Israel? Is the church only a temporary entity until national Israel is restored? There are many more questions, and there are numerous options for answers to each question. And I'm not proposing to answer that question here this morning. But I would say this, the 12 remain intact because the 12 represent Israel. And I don't see that the purpose and the goal of Israel was any different than the purpose and the goal of the church. There are a lot of ways to say it, but the vocation or the task or the function of Israel was to be the people of God. They were to represent him to the world and to draw the nations to Yahweh. The task of the twelve as composing the foundation of the church and the task of the church itself is to be the people of God, to represent him to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And even though the twelve never play a prominent role again in the story of the church, their existence tells us that God's purposes for his people have not changed. He is to be our God, we are to be his people, and his people are to take the message of his kingdom into all the world. So what I want to do is take those three points, those three things that the church is doing, this very early church, if we can even call it the church yet, to prepare for their vocation, for their task, and apply them to us with three statements of exhortation that are almost word for word from the three points I made. First of all, let us find fellowship 
and prayer. And may our prayers be strengthened by our fellowship. Let us find fellowship and prayer, and may our prayers be strengthened by our fellowship. Number two, let us seek unity, not uniformity. Let us display unity in the midst of our diversity. I think we are in a unique situation here to do this. Because unless you're a Russian Orthodox believer, there's no other church to choose in Port Lyons. So if you don't like the style of music, or the way the pastor dresses, or the color of, well, there's no carpet, the color of the carpet runner, let's say, if you would rather have pews than chairs, if you don't like the way we do communion or whatever it is, there's nowhere else to go. So I think we are in a very unique setting to give us the opportunity to display this unity and purpose and in prayer in the midst of our diversity. And number three, let us represent him accurately so that others may be drawn to his beauty and to his wisdom. Let us represent him accurately and faithfully. Let us reflect him. Not create him for others. Let us reflect him for others, that they may be drawn to his beauty, to his wisdom, to his compassion, to his mercy, as someone else has done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are, we are your people, and you are our God, and it is our task to take the message, the good news, of your kingdom into all the world. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who haven't understood that message, that you would move in their hearts in such a way that they would embrace it, that they would see your wisdom and your beauty and your glory and the mercy and the grace and the compassion you offer, that they would just be overwhelmed by that, that they would make a commitment to you that would pale in comparison to every other commitment that they've made. And Lord, for the rest of us here who, um, you know, maybe we're seasoned veterans, maybe we're rookies, I don't know. Help us to bring your glory to the nations. Might we display the characteristics that we see at the very birth of the church, the very beginning of of the church. Lord, that we would display unity in prayer and in fellowship and in purpose and in passion, that we would, with the same mind, be your people to a watching world 
that they would be drawn to the same thing that drew us to you. We ask for your patience and for continued grace in undertaking this grand and glorious and difficult task. Thank you for your promise to give us the gifts and the tools with which to do it. And Lord, we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.